Okay. This morning we're going to talk about Jesus the Master Teacher, and we're going to talk a little bit about, about the methods that he used, maybe some of the a little bit about the contents of it, and then we'll talk a little bit about what made him such an effective teacher. Uh, in Matthew 19, verse 16. In Matthew 19, verse 16, it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might may have eternal life? He's referred to as the good teacher in Matthew 19. In Matthew 23, 8 through 10, he's referred to as one is your teacher. And it says there in Matthew 23, 8 through 10, But you do not... Be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on your earth father, for one is your father, for he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And then also in John 13, 13 through 14, John 13, 13 through 14, He's called teacher and Lord. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, each other's feet. So Jesus used several methods that when he taught, and we're going we're gonna to discuss a little bit about each one of those methods that he used. He's often referred to the master teacher because he knew how to communicate in such a way that what he, what he taught lived in the people's hearts. One of the most memorable and effective teaching methods that he has was, was parables. And a parable is simply a comparison, whether in the form of a simple statement of comparison or a story. If you count the story parables only, about 30 parables of Jesus are recorded in the various Gospels. Counting all comparisons, there are about 60 are given. Matthew 13 contains one of the most significant collections of parables, with almost the entire chapter consisting of parables on the subject of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, as it's called in this chapter. The stories reveal the aspects of what the kingdom is like. One of the purposes of parables was to illustrate a truth or to give an important spiritual insight. And sometimes Jesus had another purpose for telling parables as illustrated in Matthew 13, 10 through 13. Listen to what he says here. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus sometimes told parables to illustrate, not to illustrate truth, but to conceal it from those who were unwilling to accept it anyway. They would reject the truth that he was teaching. 
some of the parables that 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 he taught, such as the in Mark chapter four verses two through eight and Matthew thirteen one through twenty three, was talking about the, the the seed, the sower, and the souls. It's also known as the parable of the sower. Uh, parables usually just typically had a simple message, a single message at at, at heart and. The message there would be to sow the seed and people's hearts would determine whether they accepted that message or not. As far as the parable in Matthew chapter 7 verses 16 through 20, which is the parable about the good and bad fruit trees, he was trying to teach people that you would know the type of tree it was or the type of people that they were or the teachers, whether they were false teachers or not, by what that tree produced. And then also the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. He was teaching them what the kingdom of heaven was like and that there was five wise virgins and five foolish virgins, virgins that were not prepared for the bridegroom's coming. It Parables always had a single point being made and it was easy to remember and to repeat. Jesus used parables to make the message clear for everyone that was present. The same reason today that we, we typically use illustrations. Now we should note that and understand that the parable is not the same as an allegory. An allegory is a story in which each character, place, and object symbolizes something. Parables usually only had one main point. And Jesus did teach effectively using parables. The second method that Jesus used was called an epigram, and it was a short, memorable statement. Uh, often it could be considered witty and paradoxical in saying. And an example of that is in Matthew 10:39, where it says, He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Another example of that is in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A third method that Jesus used might be called an argument. It was always based on scripture. And in, in Matthew 22, 15 through 45, we, we have a series of arguments or debates, as you, you could say, maybe recorded, where the Pharisees in verse 15 say, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They came to him and they asked him whether it was lawful to pay taxes to, Ro to Rome. And they, they were trying to entrap him on whether, whether that was true or not. And his response was, was ask for a coin. And he said, who's on the coin? Caesar. And then he told him to give to Caesar what belonged to Caesar. And at the end of that, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Then later on in, in 15, further down, the Sadducees came and asked him about the resurrection, which they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they asked him about the resurrection. And when he finished, responded to them about that, that they didn't know the scriptures they left him also. And then in verse 34 it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together 
And in verse 35, it says, One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This time they had a lawyer ask him what the greatest commandment was. And then Jesus returns to them a question about asking them who the son of Christ was. Was it David's son or God's son? And in verse 46, when he had finished, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day forward did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So that was the third type that he used was argument. The fourth type would be question and answer. And we see that in, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26 where it says, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but he forfeits his soul? Also in Matthew chapter 9, Verses 1 through 8, he asked them a question. Matthew chapter 9. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to himself, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? There's his question. Which is easier to say? But that, in verse 6 it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And then in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and 29, he asked the question to his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And then, Who do you say that I am? He also used object lessons. In Matthew chapter 18 and verses 1 through 6, he used the object lesson of a little child. Matthew 18 verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one su such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He used a little child to teach about humility and when they asked the question about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He also used a widow in Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, talking about giving. Jesus looked up and saw the, the rich putting their gifts in the offering box and how a poor widow put two small copper coins and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she has 
to live on. So Jesus used several different methods to teach, including parables, epigrams, argument, question and answer, and, and object lessons. What about his content of teaching? What did he teach on? He always taught from the Word of God, and we can see that in John 14.10. In John chapter 14 and verse 10. Do you not believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I, have, I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And he taught on a variety of subjects, and we can see that in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about attitudes. He talked about oaths. He talked about love for your enemy. He talked about sexual immorality. He talked about prayer in Matthew 6, 5 through 15. He talked about fasting in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. He talked about materialism in Matthew 6, 19 through 34. He also talked about marriage and divorce. In Matthew 19, 3 through 12, he talked about uh, our relationship to the government in Matthew 22, 15 through 22. And he talked about the nature of God in John chapter 4 in verses 21 through 24. So, what made Jesus an effective teacher? We know that Jesus came to this earth to, to ransom man from sin, and we find that in Luke 19.10. And we know that his life leaves us a powerful example to follow, and we can see that also in 1 Peter 2.21. In 1 Peter 2.21 it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus was probably one of the greatest teachers that the world has ever known. And everything he did was focused on helping people get to heaven one day. And because of this, common people heard him gladly. And that's in Mark 12, 37. So since Jesus is the greatest example and teacher that the world has known, shouldn't we consider what made him an effective teacher? One of the things that made him an effective teacher was his authority. Look at, look at how people looked at his authority in Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. He surprised people by his teaching. The way that he taught, they didn't expect it. It was they caught them off guard because they had never heard one teach like him. Also in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's look at their, their reaction to his teachings. How did people react when they heard Jesus teach? In John chapter 7, in verse 46, when they were trying to, they sent some officers to arrest Jesus, and they were 
were turned back without him. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And then in Mark 1, 27, Mark chapter 1, verse 27, And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. Jesus also showed his authority by saying things like, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, showing his authority. We can see that in Matthew 5, 22, 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. A little further down in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33, he says again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. And then in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He did many signs and miracles to prove his authority, and his authority came from the Father. And in Matthew 28, 18, he tells us, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where do we get our authority today when we teach? It's from God's word. It's from the example that he left us. Jesus' authority made him an effective teacher. What else made him an effective teacher? His purity of life. No one will listen to a hypocrite very long. The fact is, the truth sounds rather nonsensical when it comes out of the mouth of someone that won't live what they, what they say. When they, when they say one thing and they do another thing, it, people won't listen to that or they won't pay attention to it for very long. Jesus was no hypocrite. We studied a couple weeks ago that he was tempted to use his supernatural power for selfish and sinful reasons, but he refused. When he was invited to leap off the temple and test his father's words, he declined in Matthew 4, 7. And when he was offered the easy road to kingship, he boldly told his adversary in Matthew 4, 10, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And at the close of Jesus' life, Pilate would exclaim, I find no fault in him, in John 19.4. Jesus lived a blameless life with, without fault, without sin, without blemish or spot. Let's look at some scriptures that show us this. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 1.19 But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, 
1 Peter 2, 22. Who committed no sin, nor deceit was found in his mouth. And then Hebrews 7, 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and he becomes higher than the heavens. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. What makes a great teacher? One that is marked by faithfulness to God's word. He had a purity of life. He set a great example for us. What else made Jesus an effective teacher? He had passion for souls. He had a passion for souls. Jesus was willing to leave paradise to save souls. In Philippians 2, in verses 6 through 7, it says, Who though he was in the form of God did not Count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then in Luke 19 and 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He had a compassion for the lost, and he taught because he saw a need. In Matthew 9, Verse 6, I mean verse 36 and 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then in Mark six thirty four. it says, When he went ashore and he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Being like him means that, that all of us need to leave our own comfort zones to reach someone with his saving message. When he was at his, pop, his most popular state at peak, was at peak, he had the proverbial bird's nest on the ground, but he forsook his own comfort and reached out for more. Look what it says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 43. Luke chapter 4 and verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was constantly on the move, always looking for someone else who was willing to listen. He was constantly searching and seeking for the lost. So that brings some food for thought. Are we really concerned about willing, winning souls to Christ? How much time do we, sp do, do we spend thinking about lost souls? Have we lost any sleep over lost souls? Have we shed many tears over lost souls? 
How many times have we foregone pleasures and luxuries in order to win lost souls? In Matthew 16, 26, it tells us, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? If we think about the value of a soul, it makes us more soul conscious. How much is a soul worth? By the way we live? By the way we react? What do we say a soul is worth? Jesus didn't go through any day without being conscious of spiritual needs of people. Jesus was willing to give his life for souls. He had a passion for souls. What else made Jesus an effective teacher? Openness. Jesus was truly willing to listen to his students and to be compassionate. In the case involving the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus demonstrates his approachability. In Mark chapter 7, this is where the story takes place, beginning about verse 26. This woman petitioned the Lord to cast out the demon of her that was in her daughter. And think about this. This woman, this Gentile woman, addressed a Jew. She's going against the social grains of, of, of the culture of that time. She was a woman addressing a man. She was a student addressing a teacher. How much courage did that take? And what did Jesus respond to her? He said that helping her was not part of his immediate purpose. But look what she says in verse 28. The woman quickly added, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Jesus cast out the demon of his daughter and, and proved that one mark of a good teacher is to be open, approachable, and compassionate. Jesus was also approachable by others. He was approachable even to little children. In Mark 19, verses 13 through 14. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belong to the kingdom of heaven. He was approachable even to little children. He was willing and open to touch even the untouchable. In Matthew 8, verses 1 through 3. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him. A leper came to Jesus and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He was willing to spend time with those who were looked down on, those who were considered sinners. In Luke 19, verses 5 through 7, a familiar story. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up 
and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus had an openness to him, and he was willing to associate with anyone that was lost and that would hear his word. It made him an effective teacher. What else made him an effective teacher? Organization. One of the greatest hindrance to a good teaching is lack of organization. Great truth without structure functions like jello. It's relatively easy to eat, but it's not very filling. Wherever he went and whatever he said, Jesus Christ always had a plan. In John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus said to Philip, verse 5, Where are we going to buy bread? so that these people may eat. But even as he asked the question, he had a plan. He already knew what he was going to do. In verse 6, it says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus understood the need for preparation. And so he spent a lot of time preparing his followers. And we can see that if, if you have time to look at John chapters 14 through 16, he spent a lot of time preparing his followers and telling them what they needed to do in order to inherit eternal life. His great sense of purpose and planning made him the master teacher. What else made him an effective teacher? He had gentleness as a teacher. He had the incredible patience with people who were not always easy to forbear. In first in Second Corinthians chapter two chapter ten verse one, sorry. Second Corinthians chapter ten and verse one, it tells us that his gentleness draws men to him. It by refer it says by meekness and the gentleness of Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, it tells us also about his gentleness. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Often the world gives us the impression that gentleness is a sign of weakness. Fact is, being gentle, when we have the power to do otherwise, is a sign of incredible strength and maturity. It is strength under control. <clears throat> when Jesus was touched by the woman with the issue of blood in, in Mark chapter 5, in verses 25 through 34, He could have handled it very differently, but he could have had one harsh or unkind word, but it would have crushed that poor woman's fragile spirit. But Jesus spoke to her words of gentleness and with compassion and said to her, 
in verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your great affliction. Though Jesus was mighty, he kept his power under control as he taught others. His gentleness is a tender, compassionate approach towards others' weakness and limitations. Let's follow his example and be gentle as we teach others, as it tells us in Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. What else made him effective teacher? His unfailing logic. Great truth is often lost on people because the teacher fails to effectively argue and prove his point. God has given us the ability to reason, and he expects that we'll use our abilities to, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, to prove all things. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, it tells us, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In the English Standard Version, it says with gentleness and respect. Jesus, the master teacher, always proved that his words and his deeds were both logical and true. And when asked why he ate with sinners in Mark 2.17, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He adequately answered all those who challenged him, as we saw earlier. And in Mark 12.34, no one dared to ask him any more questions. His unfailing logic made him an effective teacher. What else made him an effective teacher? His imagination. Jesus had a remarkable ability to take lofty concepts and communicate them in a meaningful way. If we just go back to some of his methods that he used for teaching, such as parables, they're an example... Excellent example of how our teacher can use his imagination to teach others about God's will. Jesus used earthly ideas to help his followers understand spiritual concepts and spiritual principles. Just consider how he described the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. He described the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 as wheats among tares in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He also described it as a mustard seed in Matthew 13, 31 through 32. He described the kingdom of heaven as leaven hidden in bread in Matthew 13, 33. He described the kingdom of heaven as as a hidden treasure in a field in Matthew 13, 44. He also described it as a pearl of great price in Matthew 13, 45. He also described it as a dragnet cast into the sea in Matthew 13, 47 through 50. 
Jesus was a great teacher because he always looked for fresh ways to aid his hearers in understanding spiritual principles. Jesus' imagination made him an effective teacher. What else made him an effective teacher? His sacrifice. Teaching that costs nothing is more likely worth nothing. Jesus understood sacrifice involved helping others to get to heaven. So what is it? the meaning of sacrifice? Well, I've got a few rules that will help you understand what it means to truly sacrifice. The first rule for an effective sacrifice is that it must cost. For the true measure of any gift is in what it costs the giver. An acceptable sacrifice cannot be the leftovers. The poor widow was commended for her giving because of her two mites given to the Lord represented all that she had. Truly a costly gift for the giver. It wasn't out of her abundance. A second rule for acceptable gift. An effective sacrifice is that it always must be the best. We must always give God our best. In the Old Testament, when they had to sacrifice lambs, it always had to be the best, the one without spot, the one without blemish. It was never the one that was skinny, scraggly. It was the best of the herd. The third rule of a Effective sacrifice is that it must be the first. In Deuteronomy 26.2 it says you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground. It's not the seconds. It's not the thirds. It's not what's left over, but the first. In order to fulfill his ministry, Jesus made sacrifices. Jesus stayed up late in Mark 1.32-34. And he woke up early in Mark 1.35. It says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he endured the scorn of those who thought him a fool in Mark 5.40 and contrived questions of those who thought him a liar in Mark 12.13. Because of his teaching, He faced denial by the people he knew and he loved and the betrayal of one of his closest followers in Mark 14, 5. Our master sacrificed much to draw others to him. How much are we willing to sacrifice to be like Jesus? What made Jesus an effective teacher? His authority, his purity of life, he lived a perfect life. His passion for souls made him an effective teacher. His openness, his organization, his gentleness, his unfailing logic made him an effective teacher. His imagination and his sacrifice made him an effective teacher. And we should all try to strive to be like Jesus. And we should strive to be effective teachers. 
Any thoughts or comments before we close out? Stan? So Stan was saying that, that one of the things that made him an effective teacher was that that he, he could have done it just out of knowledge, but he did it out of, of the love that he had for us and his willingness to help us to get to heaven. Daniel, did you have something? You covered everything, no doubt, that I, I could ever think of. And I think we have to keep in mind that especially one-on-one one-on-one teaching, Jesus could look into the hearts, thoughts, and motivation of a man. And that's something that comes with the power that he had with the authority with his position. Okay. Danny, Danny was saying that, that Jesus had the ability to, when he when he <coughs> met someone or he came across someone that he could look in their heart and soul and he could see what they were about and that helped him to be an effective teacher also. I think we're about out of time. Anybody else? Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time.